You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. So, six days after the election, the three parties who won the most seats are still trying to work out who will form a government and how. Sinn Féin are trying to form a government without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Fianna Fáil say they won't go into government with Sinn Féin. Fine Gael say they won't go into government <coughs> with Sinn Féin. Labour say they won't go into government with anyone. We talked to Labour yesterday. We'll talk to the big three today. First, here's Micheál Martin talking to Sharon Tobin on RTE 6-1 after the first Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meeting since the election. It was very clear um, that, and I said this during the election, never, do, do not underestimate the strength of, of Fianna Fáil's position at every level, grassroots, voters and members of the parliamentary party um, in relation to Sinn Féin. People felt that the economic platform that Sinn Féin put forward in the election was irreconcilable with Fianna Fáil's, and particularly on the enterprise agenda, and also in terms of its financial uh, sustainability. And was what the we party united on that? Absolutely. Well, yes. That's Micheál Martin speaking on the 6-1 last night. Owen O'Brien is here. He's Sinn Féin spokesman on housing, planning and local government and a member of the party's negotiating team. Owen O'Brien, thanks for coming into us. Good morning. On Valentine's Day. Um, how is your party going to form a government without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael? You can't. Uh, and in fact, if you listen to what Mary Lou said in the last two days, it's very clear that uh, the only stable government is going to involve two of the larger parties. Uh, and that's why Mary Lou uh, wrote to Micheál Martin uh, the evening before yesterday to seek uh, an initial discussion with him. Clearly, look, there are there are huge policy differences between ourselves and Fianna Fáil. Uh, and we said throughout the election that our preference is to have an election with the pro-change parties, such as the Greens and the Sock Dems, uh, who have much stronger policy platforms on housing and health and climate, etc. Uh, but we need a stable government uh, if we're going to solve those problems. And therefore, uh, I think the only responsible thing to do uh, uh, for any party is to sit down and talk to all to try and resolve those issues and deliver a government for the people that delivers real change uh, on the issues of importance to the electorate. So you, you acknowledge that uh, that the, the search to try and find a government without Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael, a Sinn Féin government that would have included the Greens, the Social Democrats, Solidarity, People Before Profit and almost all of the rest of the TDs including Padder Tobin, Carol Nolan and 20 independents, that that simply that's not going to happen, isn't that right? Well, first of all, we never proposed that. What we said was our preference was to have a government uh, of the left without Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael. Yes. But from Tuesday morning, once you could see the, the shape of, of the Oireachtas, the broad progressive left has about 66 TDs, and clearly that's not enough for a government. Um, uh, so what we've been saying since then, which is absolutely consistent with what we said during the election, is why well, we want to have a, a government that's led by progressive pro-change parties. Uh, uh, in real terms that also means that we have to talk to the two larger parties to see if either one of those wants to participate in that government. In order to be in government then as you said it needs to involve you uh, your preference to be yourself and one of the two one of two of the big uh, other big parties. Now Mary Lou Macdonald has written to Sinn Féin sorry has written to Fianna Fáil earlier on during the week and we heard Micheál Martin's response will she write to Fianna Gael? Well, I suppose the, the first thing is we're, we're, we're waiting for a formal response from Micheál Martin, but, but let's be very clear about this. Cause obviously I think his response was pretty clear last night, uh, was it not? I, I'm not so sure in the sense that Micheál Martin over the last number of days ha- has said various things and, and there isn't the clarity. I mean, this is the man who said during the general election that he wouldn't talk to Fine Gael either. Yet yesterday he's now suggesting he's going to put Leo Varadkar back into office and essentially give us the same kind of government we no, had but can for we the concentrate on his response to your party? You, you think that there's, that there's a window there that he, he doesn't mean what he says when he says that Fianna Fáil will not go into government with Fianna Fáil, with Sinn Féin? Well, if last week Micheál Martin was saying that he wasn't going to talk to Fine Gael and this week he's saying he is, then very clearly Micheál Martin changes his mind on these matters. But what I do think is...
think is more important is is the election we've just had is an election where the overwhelming majority of people voted for change. They rejected confidence and supply. They rejected a Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, essentially co- essential coalition government over the last four years. And on big issues like the housing crisis, the health crisis, the childcare crisis, uh, uh, the pension age, the climate crisis, they're saying they want something different. Now, it's early days, uh, and while I don't think the public will tolerate this dragging on for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, I think there are still all sorts of possibilities. And our focus is this. We're talking to the Green Party, we're talking to the Social Democrats, we're talking to other progressive TDs, uh, and we are seeking to meet with Fianna Fáil. And yes, we said during the election, no matter how difficult it may be, if we need to talk to Fine Gael, we'll talk to Fine Gael as well. But crucially, about delivering uh, or building a government that delivers real change. Can I just go back to what I asked you there at the beginning? Having written to Fine Fáil earlier on during the week, will your party lead a right to Fine Gael now? That, that's a decision Mary Lou will make in the coming days. But what do you think will happen? Do you think we, she will? Do you we think she should? Uh, we have said from the outset we will talk to all parties and that includes Fine Gael. Uh, but what's really important in this is is what we're talking to them about. Uh, and we're interested in talking to all parties about ensuring, for example, we get a government that builds affordable houses, that ends the tri- cri- crisis with trolleys. We, we don't want to go through the election campaign again. In, in order to deliver upon the things that you've spoken about at length over the last number mm-hmm. of weeks, you're going to need, as you know, on the base of 37 seats, other parties to help you to do so. So if we, if we could concentrate on that. And you're prepared I'm at this stage to do that with either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. Do you have a preference? Uh, the preference is for what's in the programme. Uh, and the preference is, in the first instance, to work with those parties who we share very significant policy commonalities, such as the Greens and the Social Democrats. But Yes, but as you've, no al- as you've already acknowledged, uh, and apologies for interrupting you, you're going no, to no, need one of the two big parties to do that. Do you have a preference for which of those parties do you think will be able to deliver the programme that you want to deliver? No, because uh, in some senses... Neither of those parties have ever delivered the kind of programme we're talking about, but we are willing to talk to both of them to try and deliver that programme for change. The crucial thing is what's in the programme. Does it matter to you which one of them it is then? What matters is the number of houses we can build, the number of doctors yes, and, and nurses and we we've can been employ, that, yes. if we can get the But you're going to need parties to, to help you with that, and we're trying to work out how you're going to do that. And, and the best way to do that is for all parties to be responsible to talk to each other and to try and deliver that programme. And for me, the most irresponsible thing to do is what Michal Martin has said, is to say that he won't talk to a party that now represents 24% of the electorate. He's talking about putting back in power the government that's just been booted out of power. Uh, And he's threatening another election at a time when I think the public want politicians to do their job, form a government for change, and start fixing the problems that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael created through four years of bad government. Are you prepared for opposition again? Uh, The people who voted for me throughout this election campaign said they wanted Sinn Féin to be in government. So my preference is not to be in opposition. Sinn Féin's preference is to be in government delivering on those issues. Uh, But ultimately, of course, that's dependent on us being able to reach an agreement with other political parties. We are going to do everything we can in the days and weeks ahead to ensure a government is formed with a programme for government for change to tackle the big issues of pensions, health, housing, uh, childcare, etc. And I think that's the responsible thing to do. And I think Political parties who are saying they won't talk to others, political parties who are threatening elections, don't just smack of arrogance. But I actually think there's a certain recklessness. People can't wait. The 4,000 children who are in emergency accommodation can't wait for this government to be formed. It needs to happen as quickly as possible. Just before I let you go, and just speaking of change, I know this was raised yesterday, but just to clarify, because reading the comments in the newspapers, I'm not entirely clear. Your party's TDs as you go into the door, are you still taking the average industrial wage or do you take all your salary now? So this has been very clear for quite some time. 
uh, what Sinn Féin TDs do with their salary is is they make a voluntary uh, contribution to the party of two and a half thousand euros, which is the maximum you can make uh, under the SIPA rules. And then and TD the rest of the ninety six thousand. And then TD by TD makes uh, a, a contribution towards the running of constituency services. So in my own case, for example, I take a net uh, pay of about five hundred and fifty euros, uh, and the remainder of my salary I, do, I invest in local community projects, uh, local activities, in my constituency service, and that's broadly what our TDs do. Ola Bryn, uh, Sinn Féin TD, thank you very much uh, for joining us thank this you. morning. Galway City Council has blocked the payment of an additional €2.5 million Euro in public funding to the Galway 2020 European Capital of Culture project. Our Western correspondent Pat McGrath can tell us more. So Pat, why have they done this? over how the money would be spent essentially Galway City Council has already pledged 6 million euro to the project Galway County Council chipping in 4 million and the Department of Culture bringing the state total contribution to 25 million via a 15 million euro uh, round of funding for the Galway 2020 project now this came before the City Council last month and a decision on whether to give an extra 2.5 million to the project was deferred because councillors said there was no detail they didn't have clear understanding of how the money would be spent, what it would be spent for during the course of that meeting at emerged 600,000 of it would be used to pay seconded Galway City Council uh, staff members who are working on the 2020 project. So it came back before the council at yesterday's meeting and by a margin of 11 to 5 councillors voted in favour of a motion to refuse the additional funding which would have come out of 2021 and 2022 council budgets. So does that suggest that Galway 2020 didn't come up with any more uh, information as to why they wanted the money or if they did the councillors thought they had enough? Well, the City Council, this was first mooted, it turned out, last September by the uh, City Manager, Brendan McGrath, who uh, kind of flagged that this was coming down the tracks, this application for more funding. And it has its roots in a report from the Monitoring Committee. The European Capital of Culture is a designation awarded by the European Commission and the implementation of it is monitored. There are evaluation reports, regular meetings and all that kind of thing. And during the course of the last uh, evaluation in October 29, or October 2019, yeah, it, there was a concern from Europe that there wasn't a European dimension. It wasn't European enough. It was more local and less European. So Galway 2020 said they wanted to expand the number of initiatives in Galway City, that this 2.5 million euro would be on top of what was already planned and that this money would essentially add to the slate of events around Galway City over the course of the capital of culture. Has Galway 2020 responded to this latest move? It issued a statement last night expressing disappointment and saying that it would have, as I said there, developed a more extensive programme, but it says it's resilient and it's committed to delivering the programme as it stands at present. The problem with that is that there are funding shortfalls. These are long-standing, and especially when it comes to a private sector funding, a target of €7 million Euro in private sector funding hasn't materialised. We, we're getting more and more detail as the weeks and months go by on the amount of funding. A service level agreement between the City Council and Galway 2020 gives quarterly updates, and at the end of last year, for the year uh, from January to December, total income and expenditure was 7.1 million for Galway 2020. There's 1.7 million in support from a lot of agencies around the west of Ireland, European funding 2.56 and they're hoping to 
get 4.3 million euro in funding to cover the overall project costs from sponsorship and merchandise. Now that's an awful lot of figures, Audrey. But the bottom line, (laughs) the bottom line is they need 39 million to stage it, and they say they have 39 million, or they're confident that they will get 39 million to stage the project. But uh, the funding concerns locally remain, and of course they have been uh, had a lot of bad luck too, because last weekend the opening ceremony had to be cancelled due to the orange level wind warning in Galway over fears for public safety. There were weeks, months of preparation involved in that. We haven't got a cost yet as to what the amount of money was involved, but there are serious figures being talked about around the city in recent days in terms of how much it was going to cost to stage this spectacular event, which in the end of the day came to naught because of bad weather. All right, Pat, for now, thank you very much indeed. As many as 60 British officials who work in the European Commission in Brussels have secured an Irish passport in order to maintain their promotional prospects within the EU institutions, according to information that has come to hand to RTE. This rebranding of the British officials coincides with growing concern about a slump in the number of Irish graduates applying to work in EU institutions, compounded by the imminent retirement of a large cohort of senior Irish officials working in Brussels. We can talk now to our Europe editor Tony Connolly who has more on this. Good morning Tony. Um, We'll we'll talk about how the Irish are faring in Brussels in in a moment but uh, 60 British officials who in in a formal sense uh, will now be Irish and uh, and, uh, as a result uh, although I think uh, Brexit would have allowed them to continue working they wouldn't if they remain British have been allowed to apply for promotion. Yes, Brian. I mean, when when Brexit happened, the EU said that British officials working in EU institutions could continue working there, but it was understood they wouldn't enjoy social mobility or professional mobility up through the ranks. Uh, So 120 of those British officials rebadged to other nationalities. uh, And my understanding is that between 50 and upwards of 60 of those, certainly in the European Commission, uh, have managed to get Irish passports. Uh, And this poses a bit of a dilemma for the Irish government because, of course, the government can't uh, distinguish between different qualities of Irish passport holder. And and the risk, I suppose, is that if you were uh, an Irish person uh, originally badged as Irish going up through the ranks, um, then you might be leapfrogged by a a British official who had rebadged as an Irish uh, citizen uh, getting an Irish passport. Um, But this is in conjunction with an overall trend which is really worrying the civil service and the government of a slump in the numbers of graduates going for jobs in the institutions and this cohort of uh, senior Irish officials within the EU institutions uh, who, are, who are due to retire. So nearly one third of Irish officials working in the EU institutions are over 58 years of age uh, and of course that cohort is going to be retiring in the next mm. few years. And we, we've certainly had a sense over the years that that Ireland, a small member state of the Union, has punched above its weight in terms of having officials at uh, at very senior levels. There was Catherine Day, who was uh, the European Commission's uh, Secretary General. There was uh, David O'Sullivan, um, who was the General Secretary to Commissioner Romano Prodi. So we've had, and they're just, I suppose, two of the most high profile, but right across the EU institutions, they've been at very senior levels. Uh, throughout really very many years, uh, you'll find Irish people. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's, a, there's a natural trend when a country joins the European Union. Uh, their officials are, are kind of welcomed in and they, they provide a cohort that, that acquires stature and experience over the years. So that was the case when Ireland joined in the early 70s and then in, in the 2000s when a lot of Eastern European countries joined. Then you had this influx of people from Eastern and Central Europe who are now coming up through the ranks. But the problem has been that uh, a lot of uh, Irish graduates are simply not going for the jobs in EU institutions. They're tempted much more, it seems, by uh, the Googles, the uh, the LinkedIns, the Apples uh, and Facebooks and so on, who are offering very attractive packages for graduates in their 20s to stay in Dublin and work in US multinationals. Mm. Whereas if you want to go to work in the EU institutions, you really need to have strong languages uh, and you need to take time to get into the institutions and get up through the ranks. Once, of course, you get up through the ranks, um, you know, the benefits and the perks are there. But this is a worry for the government because, uh, you know, Ireland post-Brexit is going to have to find a new place and identity in the European Union. And if we don't have the officials and the, the people in place in the institutions uh, during that period, then the feeling in Dublin is that uh, Ireland will be somewhat exposed. I mean, it's not that, you know, officials from particular countries wear the green jersey or whatever their national jersey is. Uh, they're, I presume, meant to leave those um, national uh, uh, prejudices or sympathies behind. But certainly to have contacts at the highest levels for any member state is very important, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're, as, a, as a, an official working for EU institutions, your first loyalty is to the European project. Uh, but of course, uh, you are bringing knowledge and awareness and uh, sensitivities of the Irish situation. Uh, to, you're bringing those to bear in a given uh, context. I mean, it's understood there were a couple of senior Irish officials working in uh, the, the Economic Affairs Directorate, uh, people like Sean Berrigan, who were in very senior positions uh, during the bailout uh, and it's thought that their influence was was vital at that time uh, and you know we are going forward uh, in into a post-Brexit period where Ireland uh, cannot rely on the expertise and heft of British officials uh, and the British government in key areas like taxation and the single market uh, and for that reason the Irish uh, civil services is now looking at uh, creating a dedicated stream of officials from the civil service who will be given time and resources to improve their language skills and mm -hmm. improve their knowledge of EU policy right. so that they can go forward uh, and be seconded uh, into the uh, civil service. But they right. are going to need okay. graduates uh, to, to push themselves forward as well. Right. And maybe to cultivate contacts with those now 60 were British but now Irish officials in the EU. Uh, Tony, thanks very much indeed for that. Facebook has postponed the introduction of a new dating feature in the EU following the intervention of the Data Protection Commission. The new feature was to be introduced today. However, the Commission said it only learnt about this last week. The Deputy Data Protection Commissioner, Graham Doyle, has been telling us about what happened. Well, Facebook Ireland um, first contacted us last Monday of last week, which is Monday the 3rd of February, um, to let us know that they intended to roll out this new dating feature right across the EU. Um, so I suppose, first of all, we were very concerned that this was the first that we'd heard about something that was going to obviously impact on users and um, many million users potentially right across right across the EU. And it was the first time that they'd come to us with a 
plan that they were going to roll out to the feature today, actually February 13th. So why then did you go into Facebook's offices on Monday and what did you do there? So first thing is when when they did contact us on Monday the 3rd of February, um, we were just given a small bit of information about what they were planning to do. So our concerns that we had in relation to the fact that they given us such little notice were actually further compounded by the fact that we didn't receive any documentation um, in terms of what's known as something like a, a data protection impact assessment. So these are kind of assessments that organisations, when they're introducing features such as this feature, um, they would conduct these assessments themselves. And it's a way of them identifying risks that arise out of the, the processing of the personal data and, and will identify to them uh, ways in which they could mitigate the risks um, as early as possible, I suppose. Um, so we didn't receive any information um, along the lines of this. So from our perspective on the 3rd of uh, February, when they first came to us, it wasn't even evident to us that a data protection impact assessment had been conducted. Um, or indeed, we had no other information around the decision-making processes um, that had taken place by Facebook. So then, obviously, we we looked and, and, and saw what exactly it was, that what kind of information it was that we needed from Facebook to be able to make an assessment um, of, of the planned um, feature that they were looking to roll out. So in order to expedite the kind of the procurement of the, the relevant documentation that we required, we had authorised officers from our office um, who attended Facebook um, uh, on an inspection on Monday morning of this week, so it's the 10th of, 10th of February, um, and we gathered the, the documentation that we, we, we had initially been looking for, um, and we were also able to then, um, having reviewed that documentation, when we came back to the office, we then contacted Facebook again on Tuesday um, and asked them another series of, of questions, um, which were still awaiting replies from Facebook too. Um, and also, I suppose, as part of that correspondence on, on Tuesday, we made it very clear to Facebook that due to the fact that they had only contacted us last Monday for the first time, that there was no way we were going to have reviewed um, all of the documentation in time for their planned rollouts today. So again, I'm sure, as you're aware, Facebook then contacted us on Tuesday evening to say that they had postponed the, the planned rollout. Is all of this unusual? Because it sounds as though relations between your office and Facebook in Dublin, as though they aren't that great. Well, in terms of how usual or unusual it is, we have organisations who um, regularly contact us when they are going to develop um, features and not, not just big tech organisations. You know, we have in, in the public sector organisations are required to contact us if they're introducing, say, a new piece of legislation that will um, have data protection implications. Um, we have organisations, small to medium enterprises, contact us regularly um, in relation to the features that they're bringing. And Facebook, in fact, themselves would contact us and um, would have contacted us in the past, as do some of the other big tech companies. I suppose what's unusual here for us and, and what was disappointing from our perspective is the notice time that we were given, the period of notice that we were given um, from Facebook, which, as I say, was only 10 days is all we had from, from when we were first notified of this to the intended rollout date. So, so that was that was the unusual element of that, um, of this particular scenario. Um, and then, I don't want to be repeating myself for, for the listeners, but again, um, in terms of what Facebook had provided us with or what they hadn't provided us with, um, we would have expected, we would have expected an awful lot more. Are you continuing to engage with them? Because you said a few moments ago that they hadn't yet answered all of your questions. 
Yes, absolutely. We're we're still waiting for, and um, we're still reviewing, and um, what we have, the information that we have to hand, and we're still waiting for uh, responses to the queries that we've we've posed of them. Um, and we wouldn't expect the we wouldn't expect this feature to be rolled out in advance of, of that uh, that engagement being completed. Are you disappointed with how they've behaved? Um. Disappointed with the again, what as I said earlier, disappointed with the fact that we were given such a short notice for something that was um, that was going to be going to be rolled out in such a short period of time. And um, however, ultimately, you know, at this stage, the feature hasn't been rolled out, um, and uh, we'll continue we'll continue assessing everything, and uh, we'll we'll we, we as I say, we'd expect that Facebook won't roll this feature out until such a time as we're we're satisfied. And that was Graham Doyle, the Deputy Data Protection Commissioner. In a statement, Facebook said it's really important that we get the launch of Facebook dating rights. So we're taking a bit more time to make sure the product is ready for the European market. We have worked carefully to create strong privacy safeguards and have shared this information with the IDPC head of the European rollout. Overworked staff and out of date buildings. Just some of the findings of inspections of the country's 19 maternity units carried out by the Health and Information Quality Authority. Overall, they found that high levels of compliance were there in detecting and responding to emergencies, but many services rely on overworked staff. One in five consultant jobs are unfilled and many of the buildings are old, uncomfortable and present an infection risk. Mary Donian is Director of Regulation with HICWA, the country's health watchdog, and she's with us now in our studio. Uh, Mary, thank you very much for coming into us today. Can you tell me why you carried out this report? Yes, um, in 2016, the National Standards for Maternity Services were published and mandated by the Minister. And they were there to support uh, improvement in services, but also the National Maternity Strategy, which also was a 10-year strategy, which is, you know, outline the, I suppose, the future-proofing of maternity services over 10 years, delivering a service which is safe, giving women a good experiences and choice. And can you remind us of the background as to why that strategy was put in place? Because there have been a number of high-profile uh, accidents and problems in the years running up to that. That's correct. And I suppose probably the main initiation for it and catalyst was the investigation we conducted in Port Leash Hospital. And some of the issues that came came to the fore there and they're well documented was that it's really important that small units have a network into a major teaching maternity hospital and that's one of the key findings in our report. Secondly, I mean in, in a patient-centred point of view and lady-centred point of view, I shouldn't say patient it was there was tragedies happen and I suppose healthcare, maternity care is high risk and tragedies will always happen. The important thing is that when a tragedy happens that there is learning from that tragedy and more importantly that not only is the learning happening but it's shared at that unit level at the group level and at a national level and I suppose in this report we find that there is huge opportunities for those arrangements to still improve. Positively we've seen directors in Midrophy and all the maternity hospitals and units and we've seen very good bereavement services now in place which would have been one of the very sad uh, remisses in the Port Leash investigation. Tell me about the other uh, good things that you found. What we found was because there's there's uh, 44 standards in the national standards and we critically examined 21. The 21 we looked at were specifically have maternity units and hospitals got arrangements in place to detect high risk 
manage high risk both before, during and after a baby is born. And what we found across the 19 hospitals, and you'll see it in the overview report, is that there are good arrangements in place. And this is a very positive finding and great credit must be given to the staff working in the 19 units in maternity hospitals. But I suppose as a regulator, we have an important question to ask, and that is these positive findings, are they sustainable? Because, of course, the delivery of service is dependent upon that. And we have made eight critical recommendations in our report. Uh, and we hope that these will be implemented by the HSE. I'll come on to some of those in just a moment. But there have been several reports that would have raised concerns over whether uh, workers in maternity hospitals were able to work and properly interpret and react to baby heart monitors yes. or CTGs. What did you find? We identified that there are areas of concern in training across multi, across a lot of uh, areas to include that. Uh, the treatment of an emergency really is dependent on excellent multidisciplinary working together. Uh, And therefore, it's essential that training is multidisciplinary training and that it's consistent and the same type of training given across all maternity hospitals because staff rotate around the hospitals. There was evidence of good practice, but not consistently across the 19 hospitals. And CT training is also included in in that. Uh, And we've made a recommendation uh, specifically relating to training and the centralisation of the standardisation of training, which is the important bit, but also the centralisation of the records of people actually being trained. So how do you know or can you know if people who are operating those machines know how to work them properly and interpret them properly? We looked at the interpretation eh, and the training that was there eh, and I suppose our assessment is is A, the training being provided B, is training, is our staff attending the training at the frequency which is laid out and are there records to confirm that? And what we found was training was being provided. However, we did find that not all staff were either attending the training or that it was being recorded to confirm and validate for those who have responsibility for the delivery of the service. Yes, it concerns us. I suppose one of the important things as well is in the report it shows that, and, and you made reference to yourself, of the challenge in the uh, provision of services for staff on the ground. Uh, And small hospitals and units, I mean, there's no way to describe it otherwise, is they're not always attractive places for people to work in. And that's why we make a very important point. And that is that there needs to be, the large hospitals need to be networked into the smaller hospitals and the smaller ones into them, because that is really what's going to deliver safer services, consistent arrangements, tried and tested practices and shared learning. So do women now and their babies receive the same quality of care and outcome no matter what hospital that they have their baby in? I I think the maternity services need to be commended in this because they, above all other clinical services in the country are ones that really measure outcomes and they publish their outcomes and they're very positive. Is having 19 maternity units sustainable in Ireland? The maternity strategy sets out a pathway for maternity services. Uh, And that pathway, there's three different pathways. And one of the pathways, for example, is a supported care pathway, which is for ladies with minimum risk. What is evident is that uh, the infrastructure across the 19 hospitals, I mean, if you were to ask me today, which hospitals are compliant in the context of a standard, which is number 2.7, which is about the premises, there was only two maternity hospitals, and that was Cork University Maternity Hospital and Kevin Monaghan. 
None of the other maternity hospitals are compliant in that. So, in fact, they, it would be a great challenge to be able to deliver a standard which always uh, provides, you know, the environment and the confidentiality, the privacy and all that infection control. So there's choices for the HSE to make in that regard. And we have a recommendation which outlines that. Mary Dunyan of the Health and Information and Quality Authority. Thank you for coming in to us. The decision by Boris Johnson to replace Julian Smith as Northern Secretary has been criticised by all sides of the political divide in Northern Ireland. All day yesterday, tweets poured in praising Mr Smith's role in securing the return of Stormont and saying he was one of the few Northern Secretaries to show a real interest in the province. Well, Naomi Long, the Alliance Party leader and now the Justice Minister in Northern Ireland, joins us from Belfast. Good morning. Good morning. Now, Julian Smith was certainly feeling the love in Belfast yesterday. What do you think are the real risks of having somebody brand new coming into that job at this time? Well, I mean, I think firstly, it's understandable, um, if a little surprising, that Julian Smith was as popular as he is, because normally the the most that a Secretary of State here can hope for is that he is equally disliked by all of the parties. Um, But actually, in this case, I think Julian earned people's respect by engaging with local people, by engaging with local parties, by listening and showing a genuine interest and understanding of the challenges that people faced. And I think that's why he has not just been praised by all of the parties but has actually been praised by the public and particularly um, by people like for example victims of historical institutional abuse who were able to come forward yesterday and say that really he was the first Secretary of State who had properly engaged on their issues and delivered what he promised so I think it's understandable that people are disappointed and I think the risk um, of losing someone that engaged is that he is replaced with yet another um, of a string of politicians who come through Northern Ireland and have no real interest or connection, no um, particular um, interest in learning about the issues and engaging with the issues. And it comes at a very um, important time when the agreement that we reached prior to Christmas is still quite fragile and when we also face losing the other person who contributed hugely to that um, in Simon Coveney um, as Tonishta. So I think for all of us this is a a kind of unsettling experience um, in that we had built good relationships um, and we are now in the process of delivering on that agreement and there are issues that the British government will need to deliver on um, and now we're unsure who will lead that piece of work. And are you saying that you can't develop a good relationship with Brandon Lewis? I mean, the the deal, the Stormont deal has been done, so he comes in in a much better situation than Mr. Smith did. He he has a bit of a, 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 a leg up as he starts, really, doesn't he? Well, he does, and I have no doubt that we will work hard um, to to be able to make that connection with Brandon Lewis, and I have also no doubt that he will um, learn from the experience um, of Julian Smith and see how well-liked he was by the public um, and by the political parties and hopefully replicate the level um, of interest that Julian showed. Um, So, you know, we have to work to build those relationships, but realistically, um, Julian spent a lot of time in Northern Ireland because um, the 
assembly was suspended because there was a particular political process. He was only here um, for just over 200 days, um, but he spent a lot of those 200 days in Northern Ireland. It's unlikely um, that any successor will feel the need to be here quite as much as that. That's a positive because it shows that we have stepped up and are doing our jobs again. But it does, I think, constrain the ability to build those relationships and also to show continuity in the approach taken to some of the very sensitive issues around legacy that the British Do you plan to raise to those early on with Brandon months? Lewis? Because the decision has been made. You have to get on with the new man. Do you plan to raise the legacy issues? Oh, of straight course. Of course, we will be raising those and particularly from the perspective of my own role in the Department of Justice. There are there will be a role for us in terms, for example, of facilitating and implementing any decisions around the HIU. So it's important that I build a strong relationship with Brandon and I'm able um, to work with him, hopefully influence his approach um, to these issues. But as I say, it just comes, I think, at an unsettling time. But we will no doubt adapt um, to the new Secretary of State, <laughs> as we have done on many occasions in the past. Okay. I think it's just a frustration that people will appreciate when you get someone after a long period um, who actually takes an active interest and who has some success. It seems an odd way to reward success um, to remove someone from office. Okay, Naomi Long, Alliance Party Leader and Justice Minister with the Northern Ireland Assembly. Thank you very much for joining us. Gardaí are investigating a suspected homophobic attack on novelist Gavin McRae in Dublin earlier this month. The author, who is writer-in-residence at Limerick University, was making his way home from UCD through Dartry Park near Rathmines in the city when he was attacked by a group of teenage boys. He's been telling me what happened. In the University College uh, Dublin Library working that day, it was Saturday the 1st of February, um, the library closes at half past five on a Saturday. It was dark. Um, and I started to walk back to my mother's flat where I was staying that evening. And this is a path I take regularly at all times of day and night. And I've never been afraid on that path. It's a dark path, but I've never been afraid there. Um, just before I got to the Dropping Well pub, I called my uncle. Uh, and I'm very glad I did so because he became a witness then to the attack. He overheard the whole thing. Oh. And this was a group of, uh, so, of quite young boys, I think, just age, what, 12, 14, that kind of early teens. Yeah, so I reached the Dropping Well pub at around quarter to six and I walked past two boys aged between 12 and 14. And when I passed by, these two boys started to shout at me. And I know from a very long experience, I'm 42 years old, to ignore this kind of thing. And then they began to throw pebbles at my back. I was wearing a backpack, so the pebbles hit my backpack. And then a few seconds later, I could feel the boys had approached me from behind and they were starting to scream at me and start make, and making, and from the side of my vision, I could see they were making threatening gestures. And then they were saying things like, um, apologize for ignoring me, faggot, or hey, faggot, what's your problem? Why are you ignoring us, you faggot? And so I said to my uncle on the phone, I said, can you hear that? And my uncle said, yes, are you, all, are you all right? Where are you? And I told my uncle where I was, and he said, Gavin, you really need to get out of there. And I said, no, no, these are only kids. They're messing. It's nothing to worry about. The boys started to push me from behind. I didn't run. I wasn't particularly afraid. And then when they pushed me again, I turned around. And that was the first time I saw that there were actually six of them. There were two ringleaders, and then there were four others 
and the others were laughing at what the ringleaders were doing. Um, I'm a tall person, and these were they were significantly shorter than me. As I say, between 12 and 14, they were thin, they were white, they were Irish. Um, I said, "Go away." And the ringleaders hesitated when when I when I said that. Then he regained his confidence and started shouting homophobic abuse at me again. Mm. I flagged down a car, and uh, the car didn't stop. But by the, just the action of flagging down a car, they ran away. Uh, so I thought I was fine. I thought I was safe. So I continued on my way, and they reappeared. Yes. Yeah, so I uh, with they attacked me from behind. Um, they pushed me onto the ground and kicked and punched me in the face. Just before I, I, my mobile fell to the ground, but just before it fell to the ground, I shouted, call the police, call the police, into my mobile phone. And I, I think mm. that made the attack much shorter than it might have been. But it was still pretty serious. I mean, you ended up with a fractured nose, is that right, and cheekbone? Yes. Yeah. 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 So there was blood pumping out of my, out of my face. They ran away, and I, I got up. Um, I knew it was quite serious because there was so much blood. I couldn't use my phone because there was just so much blood on my hands and blood, so much blood on my phone. And I came up out onto the Orwell Road, and a, a couple, a very nice man and a woman, then helped me, and they called an ambulance and called the police. One of the things has been the tremendous support I think you've got from friends, and this has been reported in Spain, where you lived for a number of years, um, and, and people there have been in contact with you. But you also, and I'm reminded of what Rory O'Neill said when he, Panty Bliss, when he spoke in the Abbey a couple of years ago, you know, after a homophobic attack, you, I wonder and worry, what was it about me? What was it they saw in yeah. me? Uh, so that kind of thing goes through your mind, does it as well? Yes, I mean, there are a couple of things. The first is, I'm 42 years old, I've been the victim of many homophobic attacks in my life. I, being the victim of a homophobic attack doesn't make me an angel. I know what it means to be cruel to somebody else. I know what it means to call someone else a name. It was, a, it was an opportunity for me to step back and look around at the people who were supporting me. Amazing people with brilliant minds and open hearts and big hearts. And I, I thought to myself, wow, these are people that I've managed to gather around me. The other thing is about, about homophobic attacks themselves. I think they're kind of misunderstood. People ask, how do they know you were gay? And my response to that is, they didn't. My sexuality has nothing to do with it. They, they have no idea what I do in bed or what relationships I have. The fact is, they may have seen something in my dress or in the way I walked or... Uh, uh, the way I didn't fight back that puts me into the faggot box. But that has nothing to, to do with me. That's to do with what's in their mind already before I even walked into their lives. And so I really, the question is, how did, why is the word faggot so thrilling for these usually men, sometimes women, but usually men to use? And why does it even occur to their mind? Bring, why does it even come to their minds? to use that word when someone walks past them on the street. Writer and novelist Gavin McRae speaking about that assault on him in Dublin earlier this month. And just to say that LGBT Ireland runs a helpline for victims of harassment and uh, violence. And that number is uh, 1890-929-539. That's the LGBT helpline 1890-929-539. 
The funeral takes place today of the Drogheda teenager Keane Mulready Woods, who was murdered last month. Gardaí believe the 17-year-old was killed in Drogheda on January the 12th. That was the day before a general election was called. His body was later dismembered. His killing is believed to be connected to the ongoing criminal feud in the town. Our North East correspondent Sinead Hussey is with us. Sinead, remind us what happened to Keane Mulready Woods. Well, this, Gavin, has been a very difficult few weeks for the family of Keane Mulready Woods, his father Barry, his mother Elizabeth and his sister and three brothers. Um, I suppose it's been made all the more difficult by the circumstances in which he appears to have been killed. As you said, Garthy believed that this uh, murder was connected to the ongoing criminal feud in Drogheda. Um, Garthy discovered in a bag in Coolock in North Dublin on the 13th of January uh, remains of the teenager and two days later uh, they found more remains discovered in a stolen car which was found uh, on fire in a laneway near Crow Park in Dublin's north inner city. Now DNA testing was carried out and it confirmed that the remains that were found were those of that teenager who turned 18 uh, just in the last number of weeks. What are the arrangements for today? Well, today's funeral will be led uh, by the parish priest, Father Phil Gaffney. He's been supporting the family over the last number of weeks. He organised um, a prayer service in the week after uh, Keane Mulready Woods's um, murder. Uh, and he also has been uh, with the family, I suppose, over the last number of days, making preparations for today. They have asked for privacy. We understand there will be a guard of presence at today's funeral. Uh, it's taking place at the Holy Family Church in Balls Grove at 11 o'clock this morning. Uh, that's the church in the parish where Keane grew up and Keane's sister Courtney has asked his friends and those attending today's funeral to wear a t-shirt with a picture of her brother on the t-shirt. It's been a long time for his family to wait for a funeral. Why the delay, Sinead? Well, Gavin Garthy said in late January that some of the 17-year-old's remains had yet to be located and a Garthy spokesperson confirmed that no further remains have been recovered. There had been hope that they could have made a further breakthrough. Searches have been taking place most recently in the Old Bridge area just outside Drada on the Slane Road. Uh, but the family have decided that a month on from this murder uh, that they wanted to hold a funeral. Sinead, thank you. That's our North East correspondent, Sinead Hussey. And while romance may not be blooming between the political parties, elsewhere, love is in the air. Our reporter Natasha Murphy has been asking the children of the junior infants class in Delgany National School, Wicklow, what they thought love was and who they'd be giving their Valentine's cards to. Valentine's Day is very nice because you get to know about everybody and you're friendly to everybody and you meet your friends. Being nice to each other and knowing friends. Um, my mommy and daddy are my brother. I love my mum and dad. When you think of people and you give, you give them something. And why do you give them something? Is it because you might love them? Yeah. And who do you love? Uh, my family. Giving hugs. Giving cards and being nice to people. And mine has glitter on it. A rainbow with glitter clouds. It's about helping people and sharing stuff with them. My mom, I'm going to give her, my whole family a surprise. And when they're asleep, I'll just put a card on their bed. Despite many still considering her a child, 
16-year-old Emily Farrell told me what it was like realising she was in love for the first time in her life. Because everyone around you is saying, you can't be in love at this age, like, it feels taboo, like, it feels like it, it's wrong or, or naive, like, people think you're just being immature. So when I started to feel it, I had to kind of reassure myself that it wasn't naive or immature and that I was real. And I was like, oh, <laughs> maybe it is real. And then he said it to me first. And it was, as if, it was as if he knew that I was like talking to myself in my brain, being like, it's getting real, it's, it's actually happening. And he said it first. What, I was, what was it that he said to you? He told me he loved me and the fact that he said it first, even when I was already anticipating saying it, is kind of like it must have happened at the same time for him as well. Darling, so it goes. Some things are meant to be. For many who fall in love, it is sometimes followed by heartbreak. Others will believe they will never be so lucky as to fall in love. And then there are those that find a love to last a lifetime. Jimmy Lawler is 82, and he told me about the day he met his wife, Kay, 64 years ago. It was in the Arcadian Bray on a Saturday night, and uh, I saw her among the girls yeah, sitting on the side of the dance hall. And uh, during the night, I said to my pal, I'd like to ask that one girl out. And I said, would you ask her? Would you go over and ask her? And he went over, and uh, the answer, why can't you come over and ask him himself? So I did. I eventually went over. We got the guts and went over and asked her. So <laughs> we met. The date was um, on the Tuesday night. Or was it the Wednesday? Yeah, Tuesday night in Ballybrack. And we walked, and we walked. Um, well, that was the first date. Um, and then there was dates afterwards. And then there was, there was breakups and more dates. And What age were you when you fell in love? Um, 18. It hasn't changed a bit. Surely to the sea, darling, so it goes. So what are the secrets to an enduring love? Have time to listen, have time for each other, and enjoy your life, because it goes in very quick. I think Jimmy was made for me, thank God. That was 84-year-old Kay Lawler finishing up that report by Natasha Murtha. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.